Yeah. Their headline wrote uh, CDA. Uh, what's dubbele punt in English? I don't know. Uh, it's no. a colon. Colon. Yeah. It's Friday, April the 22nd, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Darach, Dutch News Contributing Editor and Marco Kroon Impersonator, and with me today is Paul Peters, Master Student in Civil Engineering and Halber Zeilstra Revivalist. So I kind of know what my job title is about, Yeah. Uh, but I have absolutely no idea what Marco Kroon has done again, so please explain this to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Marco Kroon was in the news this week, um, he was the, what, what, what rank was he in the, the Dutch army exactly? He was a... I think he was a lieutenant. He yeah, he uh, was awarded the highest military um, distinction uh, that we have in the Netherlands. Uh, he he carries the uh, uh, military Williams Order. Yeah. Um, and uh, he was given. It was given to him. Uh, I think it was the first time in over forty years or something that mm. the, it was awarded to someone. Um, and uh, the Dutch army. I think did it out of a sort of PR stunt. They just wanted to draw attention to, you know, what good a job the Dutch uh, army was doing. Yeah. So they awarded to him and for, for what he did, it was, it, yeah, he, he just deserved it definitely. But what they didn't realize is that, that Marco Kroon was also a very, how do you say that? Um, a sort of uh, volatile, unstable kind of uh, uh, character who, to be fair, I guess to him had uh, seen quite a lot of disturbing things uh, in action in Afghanistan because he was yeah he was decorated for um, his kind of part in um, uh, like a was it a, I guess kind of a hostage taking in Afghanistan was it yeah uh, and he yeah. he uh, he saved uh, a lot of his uh, fellow soldiers uh, right, from yeah. his uh, from his fellow unit yeah yeah um, so yeah it was uh, he deserved it definitely but. Um, after he uh, retired from the army, he, he was accused of dealing cocaine. Uh, 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 he was accused of uh, being in uh, the possession of illegal firearms, um, mm. all sorts of troubles. And I think uh, this has to do with his uh, or him attacking someone in Breda at Carnival wearing yeah, a frog costume. Yeah, exactly. It's just been a real kind of a Greek tragedy, really. I think his career. You know, he was he, yeah. he was this celebrated, you know, um, uh, soldier who went above and beyond the call of duty. He went in to rescue his uh, colleagues, and then it's sort of unraveled because it turned out that he'd he'd then f- subsequently kind of tracked down the guy who took them hostage, and he'd he'd killed them. Killed the guy, sorry. Um, uh, and he turned out he'd not reported this to his superiors. And it's all very questionable whether this revenge killing was actually, you know, excessive violence. Um, and, and, and then, of course, we did, and then gradually his reputation just crumbled. Uh, and it got to the point where, in, in, indeed, as you say, he, he was arrested in Breda um, for um, Wildblassen. Uh, which yeah. is that wonderful Dutch word for urinating in public, and um, <laughs> and, and also headbutting a policeman. And this week, yeah. um, the development was that that case went all the way to the Supreme Court, which I kind of think is you know shows what a very you know, mature, stable democracy we live in. That the highest court in the land has time to decide you know, rule on <laughs> questions of people you know, whether or not a guy should be given community service for for, for, for peeing in the street. Um, yeah. And it decided he should. That it upheld his conviction, by the way, so or his, okay. or his, his punishment. Um, but yeah, in, in, in my case, uh, it's just because uh, I'm having my bathroom refitted at the moment, so I have no um, yeah 
downstairs sanitary facilities. Sanitary accommodations so, anymore in uh, your house. Yeah, so I've, I've been uh, outside watering the plants, and that's all I have to say <laughs> about that. And I don't want but, any any police questioning me. But it, do on, you do it in your garden, or do you do it property, on the street? Yes, exactly. Not in the street. Ah, okay. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's allowed. Yes. As long as you just don't... <laughs> and do you? are you wearing a frog costume for the occasion as well? Or? Uh, I know. It didn't arrive in time. <laughs> <laughs> That's unfortunate. And now your bathroom is finished. So yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, I wish you your opportunity to do impromptu carnival. Speaking of fallen Dutch uh, celebrities and heroes, um, you've been uh, sort of uh, uh, took another look at uh, what Hal Bezalstra said about Vladimir Putin this week, because uh, it turns out yeah, he's completely was... vindicated. Yeah, I was. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about. I don't know why I was thinking about Halbe Zelstra. Uh, the uh, he was in a in a previous life uh, foreign minister, yeah. um, in Rutte's third cabinet, I believe, and he quickly was forced to resign when he made up a story about being present at Vladimir Putin's dacha when um, the president said that uh, he wanted to own Ukraine, the Baltic states, Kazakhstan, yeah. uh, Belarus. Um, he, he entirely made that story up. Well, he didn't so entirely, he did he? Because he was there, but he was in the next room. And he no, didn't he have wasn't a conversation with Putin. Oh, he wasn't there? No. Oh, okay. And, um, he, he got the story from, uh, from a CEO working for Shell, uh. who had told him about it but he had uh, completely exaggerated uh, the story so when it, uh, uh, it was uh, journalists found out that um, this Shell CEO was the source they asked him yeah what, what did Putin actually say and then the, the, the Shell CEO had to admit that um, yeah the version of Halbe Zelstra was completely exaggerated and uh, the geopolitical implications of his version were nowhere t uh, uh, near the truth yeah. and that was the reason why he had to resign um, it, it just wasn't wasn't true at all um, but yeah if we had listened to Halbe Zelstra's lie then we could have seen what was coming, right? Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sam he actually turned out to be right. So what's to help us remind us what Zalstra actually said uh, about what Putin purportedly had told him when he actually hadn't. Uh, he said um, he was talking about Great Russia and yeah. that uh, Putin wanted to restore that uh, and that he uh, wanted to have the Ukraine and Latvia and that Kazakhstan was quote nice to have as well. I think those were his. That was his standard anecdote that yeah. he always always uh, told everyone about. Yeah. Um, and the 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 strange thing is this um, anecdote of him, you know, being present in uh, uh, Putin's dacha yeah. was one of the reasons why he was made uh, foreign minister because you know that was his main um, uh, experience in in foreign affairs yeah. even though yeah it wasn't true at all mm -hmm. and it was also um, apparently a public secret that it wasn't completely uh, the truth at all so yeah it was a strange move to make him um, foreign minister based on this obvious lie I think yeah. Um, and then uh, when it turned out it was a lie, he had to resign, resign. and uh, he famously um, said goodbye to uh, the Tweede Kamer uh, crying and hugging mm. Mark Rutte, who <laughs> was uh, yeah, his, his right hand for a very long time. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, um, we should have listened to to the lie of Halber Zelstra. Yeah, I think. He, he yeah. seemed to know something. Or are we saying that Halber Zelstra was somehow the inspiration for Putin's invasion <laughs> of Ukraine? It's, it's, it could be. It yeah, could be. Yeah. But yeah, it it was very awkward to have someone as a foreign minister lying about Vladimir Putin, especially yeah. if you if you uh, were looking at the the diplomatic relations at that time uh, between the Netherlands and Russia, which was completely on its on its um, uh, 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 down the drain basically because yeah. of MH17 because of other incidents yeah and then because um, of course when Putin came to visit Amsterdam everyone hung out the rainbow flag as well, so, yeah. yeah, that was in that was before MH17. Oh, was uh, that right. was uh, in the in the in the Russia Netherlands friendship year in yeah. I believe 2012 uh, when he opened the uh, Hermitage Museum um, in Amsterdam. That's right. Um, and out of a protest, someone uh, uh, hang a rainbow flag, of course, because uh, Russia was at that time already doing, um, yeah. yeah, a lot of uh, 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 implementing a lot of laws uh, banning. Uh, uh, homosexuality from public yeah. life, basically. I, th- I thought um, the city council hung out the flag. Actually, I thought van der Eberhard van der Lam orchestrated this. Oh protest. yeah, he yeah. he might have he yeah. might have uh, flown the flag at the at the city hall, but Putin didn't visit it or anything. So yeah, yeah that didn't really matter. But uh, there there were a lot of rainbow flags on the route fr- uh, from yeah wherever he was coming to the Hermitage. So yeah, it was definitely a a protest which probably could have annoyed him uh, a little bit. But yeah, that was wasn't what the it wasn't as bad as the. Uh, it didn't have a, as badly an effect on the diplomatic relations as MH17 had, no, definitely. No. Yeah, or, or Halberzelstra. Or Halberzelstra, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there was a, there was a nice throwback to, uh, <laughs> to to simpler times. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, throwback to simpler times kind of brings us on to uh, a radical suggestion from the CDR that completely blew up on social media this week and uh, is our op for the week this week, Paul. So what uh, what happened? It was an actual, an, 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 it was an excellent uh, OPEF, I think. It was, it really uh, was quintessential OPEF. Yeah. Um, yeah, the OPEF, as you say, indeed, is that the CDA has uh, proposed to ban French fries for people under the age of 18. The Christian Democrats Scientific Bureau, very creatively called Het Wetenschappelijk Instituut, mm. has written a report on how to tackle youth obesity and make future generations healthier. The report writes about many ideas on what the government could do to achieve this, such as taxing unhealthy food in supermarkets uh, more and using that money to make healthier options cheaper. And it also says that unhealthy food is currently causing more damage than smoking, which means that fast food should be regarded the same as cigarettes. Therefore, the report says we should think about setting a minimum age for buying fast food, similarly as uh, we are currently doing with cigarettes and alcohol. And of all the ideas from uh, yeah, the very thick report, it, uh, it was quite a substantial report, I have to say. Um, it was this particular item that made it to the headlines. Uh, first of Trouw newspaper, they wrote, um, if it's up to this CDA think tank, there will be a minimum age for fast food. This news was soon picked up by other media, soon losing all nuances and escalating uh, it was escalating very quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, NOS, as is the nature of what really. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Uh, NOS Teletext, uh, which is usually one of the more nuanced media. Yeah, one of the more sober kind of uh, news mediums. Yeah, yeah, their headline wrote, uh, CDA, colon, no more patat for children. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the teletext is always in, in, um, in capitals, right? Yeah, so exactly, it's, yeah. it's, it looked even more dramatic than, uh, than it already was. <laughs> uh, and of course, the Telegraaf uh, newspaper uh, wrote that the Christian Democrats has declared war on patat. So it was and, a patati uh, yeah. oorlog. 
exactly. Yeah, yeah. that was the, the link they were making. Um, yeah, and it didn't take long before uh, it was also picked up on social media and immediately uh, up have broke loose. Uh, and also, um, yeah, in contrast to other uh, a party's MPs, uh, the CDA MPs rushed to the microphones to clarify that they are absolutely against this idea <laughs> and that, that, that they think that banning French fries for children goes way too far. Yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah, that wasn't that wasn't the the conclusion of the report, right? It was just one suggestion. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. completely blown up in the media, totally. uh, and these over- poor CDR uh, um, scientists, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which I uh, imagine is a very dull and very grey um, uh, building they're in. Yeah, um, yeah they uh, at least they got some attention. Uh, yeah, uh, I guess yeah, it made some headlines, didn't it? Yeah, and it probably is exactly like you say. Is some at the sort of the twenty seventh meeting that they'd had to the report, someone just chuck this idea up right at the end of the meeting as they were finishing their coffee and their, their, their minuscule biscuit and uh, they, they sort of had there was one line about it in the report and suddenly it becomes yeah blown up to the massive headline but i have to say yeah, yeah but, but it did kind of generate all kinds of uh yeah so, so follow-up questions like i mean would ronald mcdonald then actually have to sort of stand at the door turning children away you know as like a bouncer yeah, so or, or making a, them show ID <laughs> and wear a clown colored boa uh, uniform. <laughs> exactly. yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was just clearly not going to work. But uh, yeah, and, and of course it also dragged um, uh, the the uh, NOS headline that you referred to, sort of uh, also raised the spectre again of the of the patate frite line. So does that mean that <laughs> yeah. kids would be allowed to have fast food below the patate frite line, but not above it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> patate sayers uh, are not allowed, but frite sayers are. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, excellent, excellent OPEF as you say, as you say. and uh, the, the lovely thing it was, that, yeah. And as with all OPEF, it was all kind of uh, over and done in a day, and uh, everyone moved on to the next thing, and it was highly entertaining. In the news this week, uh, there's a leadership crisis in one political party and a leadership contest in a different one. The Netherlands sends more heavy weapons to Ukraine, leaving Germany in the lurch, while Germany causes consternation among Dutch islanders by promising to pump more gas from the Vadersee. And in the least surprising news of the week, Erich ten Hag is leaving Ajax. Finance Minister and D66 leader Sigrid Kaag came under fire this week for her handling of complaints of sexual harassment by one of her advisors and prominent party members, Frans van Drimmelen. Uh, yeah, to give a little recap, back in December 2020, a woman anonymously wrote a blog on the internet accusing prominent party member and chairman of the party's talent commission of sexual harassment. Kaag, who was just elected party leader with uh, an overwhelming North Korean result, uh, <laughs> as you might remember. Yeah, was it 94% um, or 95? I can't remember. I, I think it was even more than that. I think it yeah. was 97. But, but, but the, uh, other, the other guy in the contest was like a blogger who lived in Singapore or somewhere and actually had no intention of leading a Dutch political party, whatever. Not yeah, and I think I think he made his money from forging money, didn't he? He did, yeah, you're right. He was yeah. a currency uh, forger or speculator or something, yeah. But it was all very illegal, he insisted. So, uh, he, yes, yeah. he did, yeah. Um, yeah, as I said, he was just elected party leader um, and she had campaigned on, you know, becoming a new leader and taking responsibility and she therefore she immediately announced on uh, an independent investigation into the allegations in uh, january 2021 the results were published and uh, the report concluded that there was no broad culture of sexual intimidation of the party which was uh, a relief uh, to Kaag, uh, yeah. who uh, wildly uh, communicated uh, the report's uh, conclusions yeah so she was able to stand up and say a month before the election we've had a thorough investigation into the 
uh, like harassment, whether there's a culture of harassment in the party, and uh, our independent report says it isn't. And that was that was it. It was done. It was over. That was the whole report, right? Exactly. No. Uh, unbeknownst to us all, uh, there was also a classified and secret appendix of the report that focused on Van Drimmelen in particular. That part wasn't published, um, to be fair, on the request of the woman who accused uh, Van Drimmelen of sexual mm. harassment. Uh, she wanted to be to remain as anonymous as possible. Um, but uh, yeah, it was only finished in March 2021. And the appendix concluded, indeed, that Van Drimmelen had in fact sexually assaulted the woman and that he had stalked, threatened and blackmailed her between 2015 and 2016. These results were only shared with a handful of people uh, of party insiders, including the woman and uh, several members of the party board. Um, she was sent the appendix, interestingly enough, on March 16th, only 86 minutes before the polls closed in the uh, next national elections. Mm. So yeah, it was also interesting timing. Curious piece of timing, yeah. Elections in which, of course, Jesus Zestig uh, did surprisingly well and won, uh, took 24 seats, which was their best ever election performance. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, but uh, so, so now uh, it would appear that this woman has uh, has basically um, uh, shared her copy of the report with the false current. So, what prompted that? Yeah, because literally nothing was done with the conclusions of that uh, secret appendix. Uh, Van Drimmelen stayed active in the party as a senior advisor to Kaag and the party um, and also as the chair of the Talent Commission. Uh, the Volkskrant wrote this week that the woman had contacted Kaag on four occasions over the past year asking her for help uh, asking her for help, but nothing was done. Uh, the woman was especially frustrated because Kaag had campaigned with the idea that she would be a new type of leader that takes responsibility, and she had also said that there is a special place in hell for women who don't support other women. Um, and also after days as assessor MP Sidney Smates was forced to resign following allegations of grooming young men, Kaag said in a response that there is no place in days as assessor for behavior like that, even though uh, yeah, still one of her main advisors um, had this uh, established history of sexual assault and mm. threatening and blackmailing. Frustrated that literally nothing was done with this, uh, with the conclusions of the report, she felt that there was no other option than going public. Yeah, we should say we are speculating a bit when saying that uh, the, the victim shared the report because the false content, has, the false content hasn't revealed its source, but there's no other plausible explanation really, is there? Yeah, no, they're very open uh, about oh. that. They talked uh, to, uh, to to this woman and yeah. uh, who had shared everything. And they, she even shared uh, the text messages that she sent to, to Sigrid Kaag. So they, yeah. the Volkskrant has the full picture. Has the full picture, um, yeah, indeed. Uh, unlike Sigrid Kaag, who also said one of her defences was that she hadn't seen the report. And in fact, she hadn't been allowed to see the report because it was confidential. And it was commissioned by the party management board rather than the political leadership. Uh, yeah. Which is uh, which kind of so, so that was one part of cast defense. Uh, how else does she react? Yeah, I, ju I just wanted to say first that um, we have to also point out that you know this this uh, part of the investigation was done you know uh, 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 in confidence yeah. on the request of 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 the uh, of, of the woman who accused Van Drimmelen. Um, but yeah, if you. You don't need to know the entire content of the report of the thorough investigation. If you are familiar with the conclusions, which yeah. Kaag obviously was because uh, the woman had, uh, 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 you know, shared it with her. Van Drimmelen is a bad guy. Mm. Um, that is all you need to to know um, to take action. I would say, uh, and and nothing was done um, with that information. So yeah, yeah the, 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 it was. Um, 
it was uh, it was a weak uh, defense uh, from Kaag yeah, on that point. Yeah, very weak I think. defense, and also just bizarre that I mean, okay, the, the, you had these two the the the, the two uh, elements of this this investigation were just kept completely separate, so that okay, it's reason you can understand why at the request of the victim, the actual details aren't included in the public report, but the fact it's not even seemingly the the, the inquiry into the culture of harassment just doesn't cover. The incident that caused you to start the investigation in the first place, you yeah. know, even anonymously, even if you say, you know, there is a party figure who has, you know, uh, um, uh, who, ha- who has been uh, accused of um, stalking and harassing uh, another party colleague and also been spoken to about it by the police and cautioned. So clearly there's some substance about it. The fact that all of that is completely left out of the uh, inquiry uh, just seems completely uh, complete nonsense really yeah and also and became also, sort of a big inbuilt flaw into the thing into the whole investigation because the fact that Kark then on the basis of the public report which at the time is all she knew said there is no that, that there are no problems with sexual harassment in the party when you know when there clearly was because even before you'd actually had the uh, the, the, the confidential inquiry the confidential report you'd had the blog post by the victim complaining about this you know lobbyist Franson Dimmler um you know you were just setting yourself up for um uh, for this absolute for, for what's happened which is that the whole thing's unraveled yeah and what's also very curious is that we have one investigation which uh, results in two reports with completely different conclusions that also seems very strange that yeah that public uh, the, the public part of the report uh, doesn't even mention the conclusions of the, of the other one that just also seems very strange um and w- what was also very strange is that car uh, over the past one and a half week uh, remain silent, uh, yeah. total silent, total totally silence. silent. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we hadn't heard a single word from her or from other D66 MPs, and there were yeah countless of very embarrassing videos uh, this week of D66 MPs literally one running away from reporters in the Tweede Kamer building, mm-hmm. um, f- you know, pretending to be calling and and, and, yes. and stuff <laughs> like that. Yeah, stepping into um, lifts uh, on their phone, which is what you do when you when you go to the supermarket and you see the uh, you see the charity. The, people with the charity tins backing away so pretend to be going on a phone call right it's kind of exactly. that kind of level <laughs> yeah uh, and uh, yeah when faction leader Jan Paternotte finally emerged in front uh, of one of the cameras he was yeah absolutely grilled by reporters who were, who were very fed up with the way they suggested was uh, was uh, yeah uh, behaving um, Sigrid Kaag in the meantime went to Washington DC for meetings with the IMF and the G20 which I think okay that's that's a general reason if you are finance minister but yeah there, there are options to communicate uh, with the Netherlands in Washington <laughs> DC I would assume but she chose to remain silent um, and uh, in the meantime over a thousand furious party members and office holders uh, signed a document demanding a response from her and from the Deze party. On Wednesday Van Drimmel announced that he would resign from all positions he held in the party and quit as a member of the party as well writing in a statement that he did a stupid thing um, and the party finally announced that a press conference would be held with Kaag and the party chairman on Friday but uh, yeah thanks uh, uh, they knew we were recording on Friday morning so they uh, yeah. pu- pushed the uh, the the, uh, the press conference to Thursday luckily yeah. for us B- big um, kudos to Data Zester for arranging yeah. that that was, uh, that was very kind of them yeah 
Yeah, very considerate, but it was an absolute train wreck of a of a press conference. <laughs> I don't think I had seen anything. It, it reminded me of Trumpian times, right? When yeah. Trump would stand in front of a group of journalists and just shout at them and uh, yeah, uh, um, uh, uh, be rude. She, she was kind of rude at some point, yeah. uh, I have to admit. Yeah, she, she, she was very kind of curt and snippy. And then she blamed her jet lag, didn't she? That she because she'd come yeah. back from, she'd flown back from Washington the day before and she said she was exactly, tired yeah. jet lag. Yeah. Yeah. She could have just given given that press conference before she left. Um, yeah. Just an idea here. Or, or um, at least kind of briefed her, you know, you, okay, she's finance minister, she had this meeting in Washington scheduled, you know, going around the world talking about finances, what you do as finance minister. But the fact that you know, seemingly she left no instructions to the party, to Tiyan Partanato or anyone seen in the party on how to handle this in her, in, in her absence. So that you just had this news vacuum for a week and a half. Yeah, it's okay, kind of but Deza yeah. Sester is known to have uh, literally an army of, of, of uh, board footers and communication yeah. advisors and uh, stuff like that. Uh, so they, they should have been able to uh, to to uh, come up with a plausible um, uh, explanation, I think, in the meantime. Yeah. They don't really need the, the, the party leader for that. No. Uh, and yeah, just to, just to see a party that always has... Yeah, a word ready, uh, uh, go completely silent. It was just very strange. And in that uh, press conference, um, yeah, they were also just seemed not to be prepared uh, to answer any of the questions. They, they they said they were very sorry and they apologized. But yeah, that was the only solid thing they had to say. Uh, every question uh, they answered led to, to more questions. Uh, it was a very, and that's a very bad sign in a press conference. Yeah, right? if, if your answers um, uh, 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 generate more questions uh, than that they answer, that's another good sign. Yeah. So yeah, it just seemed, it, it really reminded me of the professionalism of, of vault a little bit i think <laughs> um yeah it's uh i just i have to say I, I watched the whole thing and at the end i was like yeah i don't think there was any question answered here no uh, no it was I, just it was, all... it was it was just painful it was kind of like a yeah like a car crash uh which is then overwhelmed by an avalanche and then a tsunami <laughs> and then everything falls and catches fire and falls into a sinkhole it was just yeah, exactly. a, an, an unending it's, 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 it's a chain of disasters um, and yeah, it's just staggering that, and also to go back to what you said just now that they were they weren't seemingly completely badly prepared. They had a whole they had this report for a whole year and yeah. did nothing about it. And it's just staggering that they seriously thought that this would never come out and never become public knowledge, given that it all started with a public blog post accusing Franz von Dümmler. So it was kind of known about in public, and people were bound to come back to questions of saying, you know, what's happening with this guy and with the inquiry into his behavior. And yet they seemingly seemed to think that by having this confidential report, it was all done and dusted, and it would never, uh, never raise its head again. Yeah, very strange. And uh, yeah, the, the 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 there is an enormous contrast uh, now between how uh, Sigrid Kaag presented herself in the general election campaign. Uh, this uh, as a sort of yeah new moral leader uh, of of the party, um, uh, standing up for women's rights and uh, uh, doing the things that are uh, right. And 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 um, yeah, to see how she's been dealing with this scandal, it's it's uh, a lot of people. 
uh, say she has fallen from the table. <laughs> yes. Um, as a reference to this famous photo of her celebrating the Days of Sester victory on election night. She was uh, dancing on a table uh, surrounded by her advisors. Now yeah. I come to think of it, was Van Drimmele present there? I don't think so. I but don't think so. We should so, check that. Uh, yeah. That would be even more awkward, I think. Um, yeah, so, yeah, she is... Um, uh, she, she's pretty damaged uh, politically, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and, and, and he's, yeah, and, and of course for, for the victory now, this this whole uh, episode is now being completely you know, dredged back up again, and uh, you know, and, and the party still hasn't actually properly dealt with it. So you know, and and, and she contacted Carr four times. Uh, about it, and every time Carr kind of passed her on to, uh, sent to her the off party's to lawyers, lawyers. And, yeah, yeah. And refused to do, engage with it directly. So yeah, it, it doesn't uh, reflect very well on Sigrid Kark at all, just in terms of how she, yeah, the, 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 how she um, interacted with and communicated with the uh, the person who brought the complaint in the first place. So even on that level, it's been extremely badly handled, and it has uh, uh, had a real impact on her uh, the public perception of her as well, hasn't it? Yeah, and now I come to think of it, um, well, what also uh, was striking was that her defense in this press conference uh, very much echoed the, uh, the defense of Mark Rutte in yeah. the Functie Elders debate uh, on January 1st. She said, I ha- she basically said, I have no active memory of one of, her, one of the text messages this yeah. woman sent to her. Uh, she yeah. also said, um, uh, I would like to see someone who never makes mistakes. And that was exactly the same, uh, the same wording um, mm-hmm. uh, Magruta had chosen in the debate. So yeah, yeah. This, um, uh, if you look at the, the things she had said about the new admin- yeah. administrative culture and how she uh, criticized Magruta for his, you know, uh, flawed defense in that debate, mm-hmm. she's doing exactly the same thing right now. So yeah, yeah it's um, yeah, it's not a good look yeah. uh, to but say the least. We're just waiting for Magruta to come out and say, in her position, I would have stood down, and yeah. the circle is complete. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, uh, I'm waiting for that. But yeah, uh, yeah as you said, um, um, uh, yeah, public support for her is also um, uh, dropping sharply. Um, the trust uh, these ancestor voters have in Sigrid Kaag plummeted from 91 percent in uh, May last year to only 48 percent now, uh, and almost 80 percent of them uh, disapprove of her handling of the scandal. And her overall approval rating as a minister also dropped significantly. She's now even less popular than Hugo de Jonge. Um, so yeah, that wow. says a lot, I think. Um, yes. uh, her approval uh, is 18% and Hugo de Jonge is 20. So yeah, it's um, she has some work to do, I think, to um, to uh, 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 um, yeah uh, improve her image again, I think. She has some fences to mend, certainly. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess, <laughs> the, the, yeah, the, the, other, the other worry I have here is that, I mean, the, 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 this has been extraordinarily badly handled by Des and Zester uh, anyway, but also just that yeah, political parties just, have really struggled with this issue of um, you know, sexual harassment and Me Too and everything else. I mean, the PFDA was also, uh, you know, had, had, um, had, uh, had uh, an issue with Geis uh, van Dijk, who was suspended as, yeah. uh, as, as, as an MP or from the party uh, as a result of accusations against him. That's still running on. Of course, you had the whole. Um, uh, 
uh, troubles uh, within the Fault Party as well. Well, the yeah. Luther Gundogan um, uh, was, was was accused of sexual harassment, uh, suspended as a party member, took the party to court, and that became very ugly as well. Um, and meanwhile, you've got uh, another kind of uh, uh, much more low-key um, uh, series of allegations against Dion Chaos and the Pei Fei Fei, uh, yeah. who, of course, you know, is, is an MP and who was given an informal ban from Parliament by Kadir Arib, the former chairwoman, and that you know, political parties might look at all these incidents and say, well, actually, the best approach here is the Pei Fei Fei, because Kate Wilters just doesn't talk about it. He's just shut it down, and yeah. it, and it's dropped out of the headlines. And you don't want that. Yeah. You, you want transparency. You want serious allegations to be investigated properly, however painful it is for the parties concerned. Yeah, definitely. We could say yeah. at least that they are handling it better than the Pei Fei Fei um, uh, in moral terms, and that's, in moral uh, terms, it's only yeah. slightly, only slightly better, I have to say. Yeah. But we uh, remember, yeah, at least the Zesta did carry out an investigation, however badly that they, they went in with, you know, well, with the right intentions to begin with, but then it all kind of fell apart, and the actual, yeah, uh, yeah the carrying out of the investigation has been extremely poor and damaging for them, and for the yeah, and, and hasn't has undermined the trust of just about everybody. Meanwhile, over at the Partei von der Arbeit, two MPs have thrown their hat into the ring to succeed uh, Liliana Plumen as leader. Uh, that's because Plumen unexpectedly resigned last week, saying she didn't feel up to the job. And now Atchikauken and Henk Neibor will face off on Friday, which is uh, the day we're recording, to decide who should become the, party's, the, le- the next leader of the party's parliamentary group. Plumen said she felt ill-equipped to lead the party and form policy in areas where she didn't uh, have any expertise or her heart wasn't in it. Uh, but many commentators kind of speculated that maybe the real reason was more to do with the unrest in the party about the possible merger with Hrun Links. Plumen teamed up with Hrun Links leader Jesse Klaver during the coalition negotiations last year, when both parties said they would only go into government together, but it ended up with them both in opposition. And uh, Hrun Links members seem more enthusiastic about some kind of formalised partnership than their Labour counterparts. Hmm. Um, so, uh, what do we know about the, the two candidates? Yeah, Atikauken uh, first of all is uh, 44. She's been in Parliament since 2006. So, 18, oh, wow. 18 years. She must have been, what, uh, t- yeah, 26 when she... Well, 16 years, sorry. So, 28 when she went into Parliament. Uh, she was interim leader in 2016, uh, in between Diederik Samson and Lodewijk Usser. Uh, she's probably the better known of the two because she was uh, the PFDR's health spokesman during the, corona- during the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Henk Neibor is uh, 39 and he's the party's finance spokesman. Uh, they've both said they want to continue with the cooperation with Hrun Links, so it looks like that's not going to be a controversial issue during the um, yeah, leadership contest. Um, and we're saying this is, this is only to a contest to lead the group of Labour MPs in Parliament, um, which is a grand total of nine MPs. Uh, so possibly, they, they, do we think that maybe whoever, whichever these two gets the job is basically going to be a Tussenpaus? Uh, are they still going to be leader uh, when we get round to the next election in three years? Well, I, I think they, they will be a tussenpaus because yes. uh, Liliana Pluma already was one. Yes. Um, so, yeah, they, they are just going to replace her as, as the tussenpaus. Now, I'm, I'm, unfortunately for the PvdA, I don't think that the people now in parliament are uh, the people that can lead the party into a new election victory in, in, in possibly three years, possibly earlier, depending on um, whether the cabinet will fall or not. Um, so yeah, I, th- that was that was why I thought um, Liliana Plumer's resignation was so was so strange. I thought just stay on, um, uh, sort of 
um, uh, uh, communicate some sort of stability uh, to, to the public uh, as a party. You know, she's a well-known face, and she's also yeah, um, yeah appreciated. She's yeah. Uh, and just just stay on as the party is looking for someone who can lead uh, the card. Um, yeah, but they chose otherwise, and I don't think that any anyone. Uh, in the Tweede Kamer faction uh, uh, is equipped well enough to to uh, become the um, the party leader in election, I think. No, um, definitely not. Yeah, I mean, there, there were a couple of, candid- uh, of, of the MPs that were mentioned as possible candidates. Uh, Katy Piri, who's a, who's a newer member and has, uh, seems, seems yeah. to be quite well spoken of, but then also Kadir Arib at the other end of the um, age spectrum, I suppose, uh, also former parliamentary <laughs> chair, lots of experience, possibly a good person to be, you might have thought, to be to, to have that interim role. Maybe maybe she doesn't want at this stage of her career to be leading an election campaign, but she would certainly be, a, you'd think, a good manager of the uh, group of MPs and uh, someone who carries a lot of respect, I think, in the general public as well. Yeah, but as a faction leader, you need to be more than uh, respected and yeah, have this sort of yeah, statesmanship aura, which I think Kadisha Rip has as a yeah. former chair. Uh, and if you, uh, I think she definitely wants to uh, become the new chair again because Vera Bergkamp is, yeah, let's to say the least, not not doing an excellent no. job. No. Um, so I think she is hoping to 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 get that position again in in, in the coming years. And then it doesn't help to to be an outspoken uh, political. Um, yeah, poster boy uh, for the party, I think. And that's basically what you need to be as a faction leader. You need to be uh, defending the whole PvdA story and not just focus on, on, on one particular issue. Yeah. Uh, and that's basically what, what uh, Lilian Plume said of herself. I mean, she has some expertises and that's, that's the thing that she's very good at. She just doesn't feel that she is uh, equipped enough to you know, represent the entire... Uh, political party manifesto in, for example, a debate with the prime minister that we have every uh, every four uh, after budget day, of course. Yeah, um, indeed, yeah, yeah. And obviously, whenever the uh, Labour leadership uh, comes up for grabs, which she has done quite a lot in the last few years, um, <laughs> yeah. a couple of names uh, are always uh, put around of uh, more kind of se- senior, experienced uh, heavyweight contenders. One is uh, Franz Timmermans, uh, the, uh, the vice president of the European Commission, and uh, the other is uh, Ahmed Abu Taleb. Uh, rare Rotterdam. Can, can you yeah. see either of these taking the no. job between now and the next election? I would both advise them not to do it. <laughs> Frans Timmermans is, is way too divisive, I think. Um, yeah. um, 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 he, he had a lot of... He, I think he had a big success in the European elections yeah. in the Netherlands last time. Yeah. Uh, but overall, I don't think... Yeah people really like him really trust yeah. him i don't think that's uh, he would be the, the the best choice for the for labor and i would also advise uh, abu talab to just stay on as mayor of rotterdam because the pvda has experience with uh, mayors of, of big cities in the netherlands um, um, um begging to become political leader and that can only turn out to be um yeah a um, disappointment a, a, a disappointment, which was the case with uh, Amsterdam Mayor Job Cohen, um, who was sort of brought to the Hague as the as the savior of the party, but he, yeah, wasn't equipped for the job to to debate um, as sharply uh, as is required for faction leaders uh, with other faction leaders and with prime ministers. So no, um, yeah, I would uh, I would advise them both to just stay uh, where they are. Uh, I think also. 
if I, I mean, this is just speculation, but I think Frans Tibbermans would see it as a uh, demotion <laughs> to, to, yeah. to, to return yeah. from Brussels as the, um, what is he? He's the vice uh, president of the European Council, I believe. The European Commission, go- yeah, he's, yeah. Yeah, he's basically yeah. The, the number two European commissioner. Yeah, exactly. And, and then just re- Tillemans, he really belongs in Europe, doesn't he? He's Mr. Europe. Yeah. He's famous for speaking all these languages. I think coming back to The Hague and leading a group of nine MPs would be a real step down. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And uh, he would see it himself uh, like that as well, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I just don't see a clear um, yeah, successor uh, for for Plume as Leistrekker, uh, as as we call it, if you lead the, a party in the election. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. No, yeah, no, that's the thing. It is, like you say, strange timing, given there is no so clear clear successor, and she doesn't need the... Yeah, and Labour's still recovering from you know, the absolute uh, uh, disastrous result they had in 2017, you know, the, the, when they had 38 yeah. MPs before the election, uh, and they went down to nine, and then at the last election last year, they stayed on nine, and yeah. even at the local elections this year, you know, there were lots of headlines about them becoming the biggest party in Amsterdam again, which obviously is very symbolically important for the PFDR. It was their fortress for years and years and years um, but elsewhere around the country they didn't really make any headway well, to be fair neither did any other major parties but you know I think it's a very fragile kind of recovery at the moment so yeah to, to, to kind of decide to step down this stage again in one hand you can kind of admire her honesty for saying yeah. she just feel, doesn't feel up to it I think person, you know, on a personal level that's quite an admirable thing to do but you know the timing from the party point of view isn't favourable at all you know she's the fifth no. PFDR leader in 20 years there's a really because you know, real shortage of talent at the moment um and you know the whole issue of whether or not they merge with Hoon links of course i think is just going to carry on hanging over them for a very long time yeah. until they actually decide decide to do it and then uh, even then you know that the, the, uh, i'm not really convinced although the, the the two parties are very similar kind of ideologically they, they appeal to two quite distinct Groups of voters. Groups, yeah. you know, we, we keep yeah. saying that PVDR is kind of Hoon uh, Links for boomers and Hoon Links is PVDR for millennials, but they are two <laughs> distinctive constituencies. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think there's a little suspicion, particularly in the PVDR, that Hoon Links are a bit too modern, metropolitan, uh, aspirational uh, for their liking. And the uh, PVDR still see themselves as basically the party of the, uh, of the working class. Um, um, question: Who yeah. was the leader before Liliana Plume of the Labour Party? Leader before Liliana Plume was uh, Lodewijk Asser. Yeah, he was. And yeah. um, uh, did you know what he tweeted this week? I don't know. He tweeted a photo of the Binnenhof from uh-huh. the from the Hofvijver, um, very mysteriously saying, uh, "Yeah, you you only realize how nice this is when you uh, stopped being here uh, uh-huh. as often as you used to be," yeah. which might be a little hint of of uh, his return to uh, to the PvdR leadership. Mm. I don't think he will be doing it because he stepped down uh, yeah. uh, over the child benefit scandal, and I don't think it would be uh, politically. Uh, opportunistic to <laughs> to return uh, after after uh, that reason of stepping down, I think. Yeah, I, I um, think actually that the fact that Asser is even spoken of as a serious contender is a, a, an indictment of how shallow the talent pool is, really. Yeah. I mean, they, if you had anyone credible you could go to other than the guy who resigned 15 months ago over a scandal that brought down the government, you would, wouldn't you? So you, yeah. you take some, anybody else um yeah i was just curious that uh, pluman kind of this seemed to be a surprise for the labor party but pluman herself said she'd been thinking about it for weeks so seemingly she hadn't really been talking to many people in her party but one person she had apparently been talking to was jesse claver 
Yeah. So what does that kind of say about the you know the dynamics within Pefidia and between uh, the leadership of Pefidia and Hun Links? I haven't heard anything about that, but yeah, yeah I, I do think it is curious that Jesse Klaver, as yeah, you know, uh, an MP of a completely different different party, uh, knew what was she was going to do before the bulk of of her own faction knew it. Yeah, uh, yeah it's. Um, I mean, she did it because they have been uh, cooperating so closely uh, in in recent times. But yeah, it uh, I, I wouldn't be happy as a PVDA MP to to hear about that. I think, yeah. you know, it's just an um, it it is a matter for 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 your own party and for your own faction. And yeah, why would you inform someone else uh, before you uh, inform the rest? I, yeah, I wouldn't be happy. No, definitely not. So, anyway, by, by, by the time by the time this podcast goes out, I guess uh, PVDR will have a new party leader and uh, or parliamentary leader, and uh, we will bring you up to date on that next week. Well, knowing PVDR, their meetings will probably take well into the night. So, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure if we will uh, hear it about that very soon. That's true. <laughs> yes, and as we are recording this, we have an update on the uh, Labour ah. election, uh, the Labour leader election. Um, Artje Kuiker will be uh, the new faction leader of uh, the. PvdA, the uh, Tweede Kamer faction of uh, Labour has uh, decided they just elected her. Uh, so yeah, it, our prediction that it was going to take very long um, <laughs> completely fell in the water. But yeah. thankfully again for this part, political party yeah. for bringing this news uh, before we stopped recording. Yeah, yeah. Sponsor us on Patreon for more up to the minute analysis like this <laughs> <laughs> and inaccurate predictions and inaccurate predictions. <laughs> yeah, and awful Dutch ambassador names. Yes. The Dutch embassy in Ukraine has reopened and a small number of staff plus the ambassador have returned to Lviv, Foreign Minister Wopke Hoekstra said on Tuesday. The embassy moved from Kiev to Lviv just after the Russian invasion and will continue operations from the western city for the time being. Hoekstra said reopening the embassy is of great importance both for dialogue with the Ukrainian authorities and other countries and for monitoring the security risks in Ukraine. The consulate will remain closed. France and Italy have also reopened their embassies in Kiev itself, something which the Dutch plan to do as soon as the security situation allows it. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Malgrutte announced the Netherlands will send armored vehicles and other military equipment to Ukraine following a phone call with the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. The Netherlands has previously sent 200 Stinger missiles, 50 rocket launchers and 400 anti-tank weapons alongside sniper rifles, ammunition, helmets and mine detection systems. I, I didn't even know we had so much stuff in the Dutch army, to be <laughs> I don't honest. Think anybody but, did. Uh, no. Apparently we do. It's been a real surprise. Yeah. Yeah. And in doing so, of course, they absolutely stitched up the Germans because uh, now Germany is the only country in Europe that uh, hasn't come out and uh, announced in massive deliveries of equipment to Ukraine. Yeah, and instead uh, Germany is just buying uh, uh, all the gas uh, all the other countries are uh, not buying anymore from Russia. So yeah, yeah. it's a lot of criticism for our uh, our, our European leader uh, yeah. in Tri-Eastern, this regard. Tri-Eastern yeah. Eastern neighbors, yeah. Um, so the Dutch embassy in Ukraine is reopening, that's good news. Uh, but um, the one in Moscow is going to be a bit short-staffed. Yeah, because Russia is expelling 14 people who work at the Dutch embassy in Moscow and also one member of staff from the consulate in St. Petersburg. That's what the Russian foreign ministry has announced. And the measure is being seen as a uh, tit-for-tat response following the Netherlands' decision to expel 17 diplomats and other officials who were, according to Dutch security services, actively involved in spying. Russian state press agency Ria Novosti said on Tuesday that the Dutch ambassador... Oh, now I have to pronounce his name, of mm. course. Gilles Beschor Plug, 
I apologize for this uh, <laughs> disgusting uh, thing I just uh, said. He was summoned to the foreign ministry in Moscow where he was informed of the decision. It sounds like some kind of obscene instructions. So, yeah. yeah, it's... Uh, yeah. it's uh, <laughs> It's a weird name, to yeah. say the least. Yeah. Even by Dutch standards. Molly was very happy to hear about it, though, for some I'm sure strange she was, reasons. Yeah. One, yeah, one for the collection. Yeah. <laughs> the ministry said the move is in connection with the unjustified announcement on March 29th that 18 employees of the Russian embassy in The Hague are persona non grata. And Foreign Minister Wopke Hoekstra said that he had expected Moscow to respond, but nevertheless was very sorry about Russia's decision. Mm. And uh, yeah, and uh, we, we appointed a new sanctions sir this month. Uh, what's the latest on him? He hasn't appointed a uh, sanction muppet yet, unfortunately. I'm very disappointed uh, about I know, that yeah, to it's say. It's a prime opportunity yeah. to bring out the, the muppet suit. Exactly. Yeah. Um, former Minister Steph Bloch, as you said, has been charged with overseeing the government's uh, efforts to impose sanctions on Russians on the official EU sanction lists, has told MPs that he is unable to say how much in assets has now been seized. Mm. Did he commission a report uh, on, on it? Part of it was confidential and therefore he doesn't <laughs> know actually the identity of anyone who's, who's had assets seized. I think he just forgot his uh, Casio calculator uh, right. in his uh, in his in his suitcase. Yeah, so he couldn't uh, add up all the numbers. I think I pictured Steph Block as a guy who kind of does quadratic equations in his head. Surely he doesn't need a <laughs> Casio calculator. Yeah, he has one of these yellow yellow <laughs> pencils, right? That he yeah. uh, he sharpens uh, every morning um, at eight a.m. sharp. Yeah. Aha. Aha. Yeah, according to the Telegraph, Bloch is not able to share the EU ranking, even though MPs want to see how the Netherlands compares with the rest of Europe. A spokesman for Bloch told the paper that uh, it is impossible to make a comparison because of the enormous differences in what assets can be frozen. The most recent total, um, 516 million euros, was published by Foreign Minister Wopke Hoekstra on April 1st. And since then, the Netherlands has also seized 20 Russian-owned boats and superyachts. The European Commission said two weeks ago that EU members had frozen 30 billion euros in Russian assets in total, but didn't make individual country totals public. The Dutch total is still well below the 80 billion euros in Russian assets, which the Financiële Dagblad suggests are based in the Netherlands, of which 45 euros belong to people on the sanction list. 45 billion euros. Yeah. Did I say million? No, you just said 45 euros. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) even worse. No, it's 45 billion indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Could it be that there are enormous differences in what assets can be frozen because there are enormous differences between these countries' tax regimes, do we think? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> surely that must be it. Yeah. I do think that it's easier to you know, seize uh, real estate, for example. In the United Kingdom, you have a lot of Russian-owned uh, villas and uh, city palaces and uh, you name it. Mm. It's easier to confiscate than finding out exactly how a letterbox firm yeah. is owned by whom and you know on, on yeah. what uh, what Caribbean island it's uh, it transfers its money to. So to be fair, I think the Netherlands has a lot of more complicated uh, work to do. Yeah, uh, but, uh, but, yeah but even it, real estate can be transferred into a shell company based in a oh, lot yeah, letterbox true. firm and then wrapped yeah. up in a Dutch sandwich and posted <laughs> off to the Caribbean. So you know, so, obviously a lot of that has been going on, given that uh, you know yeah. such a tiny amount of the actual assets has been recovered so far. Yeah. So it seems and, that being a tax haven does have its uh, downsides. Yeah, we're discovering. Yeah, 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 exactly. We just need more bonuses. That's uh, yes, that's what we indeed. need. Yeah, bonuses for forty-five euros. Yeah, <laughs> uh, a billion of those, and uh, we'll be we'll be laughing. <laughs>
You probably don't have a Stinger missile or armoured vehicle to donate to Ukraine, but perhaps you've got a spare euro or two left over at the end of the month and it's burning a hole in your pocket. If so, why not sign up to become a patron of the Dutch News Podcast and help us to help you make sense of all the latest news, political developments and three-stage reports here in the Netherlands. As ever, we're very grateful to the kind souls who keep the wheels of this podcast turning with their contributions, and we're also always very keen, of course, to have any, hear any questions you might have. Um, and uh, we, as ever, we give a free shout-out to people who donate uh, money to us, so it's not really free, but uh, nevertheless, we're very grateful, and uh, we'd like to thank them personally. This week, we welcome one new patron, Marlies. Uh, who I think is Canadian, um, and she says, I'm a huge fan and delighted to be a patron. Uh, thank you to you, Malice, and we're delighted to, to, to have your money. The <laughs> uh, question is, uh, have all Dutch governments been coalitions? The answer is yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a simple answer. To, a simple answer to give. Yeah, it's um, a, a, at least since uh, modern times. So after World War Two, uh, I know for a fact that all the governments have been uh, a coalition government. If that's also the case for governments for, of 1885, uh, for example, I'm I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. And almost all of the coalition uh, governments have been a majority government. We only had one instance that they tried to do a minority uh, cabinet yeah, and that um, last 18 the, months and uh, yeah in the, in the 70s and so that oh, wasn't no, a huge... the, the 2012 gov- the 2010 sorry the winter one that was a minority government yeah okay technically it was but yeah. you know they had this arrangement with the pvv which uh, would always uh, lead to a majority um, yeah. of the votes uh, even though technically you could say it was uh, it yeah. was a minority coalition yeah, yeah although that's right. I mean, it, well it, it would until of course Kit Wilders decided one day to pull the plug on, on, on a big um, austerity package and, uh, and the government fell apart. So Yeah, right, in yeah. an economic crisis, yeah. yeah. Uh, but that did lead to new elections, though. So yeah. that minority coalition couldn't survive without the substantial support of, of, of one party. So, yeah, yeah, it is required to have a majority uh, one way or another. Yeah. Um, as I'm saying that, I'm reminded of uh, and the second cabinet where uh, Deze Sester pulled the plug uh, midway that left them without a majority, but they continued until the next election in a um, minority capacity, mm. even though it was only a, a couple of, I think it was a little over a year. So yeah, it is possible, but um, yeah, it's not not ideal. Well, obviously, it's all down to the voting system. Basically, we have this 100% pure proportional system, and therefore it's impossible for one party and and 20 different parties at the moment. So it's no single party ever gets more than, I guess, the very most I think one party's ever had is about a third of the vote. Say, Diago, over 50 seats one time, didn't it? Um, yeah, I think so. But, yeah. but these days, you don't really see any party getting more than... 40 is kind of the ceiling, really. But the straight answer to the question, the simple answer to the question is, yes, all Dutch governments have been coalitions, and they always will be, unless something radical, yeah. un- unthinkable happens. We also had another question about voting systems uh, from one of our longest-standing patrons, Vera uh, Lochness from Norway, uh, who also, uh, as we said in the last podcast, uh, pointed out that the Norwegian train um, operator is no longer ah. called NSB, uh, but also asked us a question um, which we held over, which is, uh, uh, would the Irish electoral system, the single transferable vote um, with uh, sort of large constituencies where uh, you vote for five, five or six uh, members in a complicated system be better suited to the Dutch context. So I'm completely unfamiliar with the uh, Irish electoral system, but I assume that the, the election within a constituency is proportional then. So you can have... Um, well, it kind of is. It, it, yeah, it is in a way. What happens is uh, it is complicated. You, you get to rank your candidates in order of preference. 
So you number oh. them, one, two, three, four, five, however many you want to. And then there are five or six members being elected in that constituency. And what happens is uh, when a member has 50% of the, the total vote, they're elected. And uh, obviously in the first round that never happens, so then they just start eliminating the candidates from the bottom. Like a sort of Vies de Mol electoral And then they redistribute the votes for that candidate based on people's second preferences. So if your first preference was for Pierre um, yeah, Baudet and he's eliminated, uh, then your second preference is Thankfully. for Linnea Laplumen, your vote then transfers to Linnea ah, Laplumen. Okay. Uh, we, we tried to introduce this, I think, in the, in, in the UK. In fact, it is used in Northern Ireland, I think, um, but uh, I wouldn't like to be quoted on that. Uh, but 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 it was uh, they, they tried to introduce it at one point in the UK and it was rejected. And there's all kind of rows about does it mean that you have three votes? And the answer is no, you don't. You have one vote, but your vote can be transferred between three or four different person. candidates depending yeah. on how the election, how the counting proceeds. Okay, yeah, it sounds very complicated, and it is a solution for exactly what? Well, it's a solution for a system we don't have, which is a constituency-based parliament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it depends on whether you think democracy should be that you elect someone that directly represents you, right? We don't really have that in the Netherlands. You yeah. basically vote for a party and the party represents you and not a single person. And um, a problem with that is perhaps that you ha don't have a, a person you can address if you have a certain issue. On the other hand, we can address basically anyone we want in, an, mm. uh, in the Tweede Kamer if we have an issue. You just search for a party that is the most friendly towards your issue i think yeah um but yeah it's um it, it depends a little i mean our in our case uh you would you could say that our problem is that we might have too many political parties in parliament yeah the problem with with uh, a constituency based electoral system is i think that eventually you will always end up with two parties basically which can be a problem in the sense that uh basically almost 50 percent of the votes are thrown away uh, mm. in that election So yeah, it, I think yeah, it's it's really hard to say uh, if this is a, it could be applied to to the Dutch system. Yeah, um, I don't I don't really see any way of grafting it onto the Dutch system, given that as no. you say we, we have this nationwide proportional system. We don't there's no real culture of local representation. Well, there kind of is because you have parties like the SKP have a concentration in one geographical area, but that 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 is not really the problem with the Dutch system. The problem is that it no. kind of fragments, and you have lots of small parties. Um, yeah. Partly because it is so easy and so cheap to set up a political party, and yeah. or um, split off from a party if once you are elected, yeah. Yeah. and then you know that you only need like point six seven percent of the national vote to get back into parliament. So you yeah. know, the, 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 I think the more straightforward solution is possibly a keystone poll, but but that's always resisted by parties like the SKP who say, well, yeah. we represent a constituency within the country, but if you suddenly have a threshold of five seats, we're never going to get in, and then all those people in the Bible Belt aren't represented in parliament. No. So during the lockdown, I was very, very bored. I tried to sort of <laughs> devise my own politicism. Well, I came up with this thing where basically you still have the current system, right? But in the, and you still vote in the same way, but you count the votes differently. So you have a mm -hmm. hundred seats with, um, with just a regular threshold, and then fifty seats with a five percent threshold. So then the parties that get more votes get more seats, but only slightly more. So you get sort of two, basically two two kind of blocks of seats, if you like. And to get into the second block, you need to get five percent of the vote. So small parties hmm. still get some seats, but not as many. And the parties ah, with the bigger yeah. share of the votes get more seats. It just slightly so it skews it, but not but not drastically. And it means that bigger parties get more seats, and therefore you'll still have coalitions. But a four-party coalition, for example, is less less likely. Is less likely. Yeah. Yeah. 
If I remember correctly, the Lithuanian electoral system has also two blocks in parliament. Yeah. One is a constituency-based block, and the other one is just a national proportional Yeah, but block. the Germans have that as well. Ah, okay, yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 interesting to uh, talk about and think about, but yeah, I don't see how this Irish system would solve any of the Dutch problems uh, yeah. uh, in the electoral system. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So sorry if I got uh, the you, you, your idea gets a big thumbs down from us, but uh, yeah. please come back with uh, with more with new suggestions, for, for yeah. possible solutions for the Dutch voting system. I'd say I think it's kind of a bit overblown anyway that, that people talk about uh, voters being disenfranchised and or alienated from politics. When you actually look at the turnout figures at Dutch elections, it's pretty healthy compared to other European yeah, countries. It, general elections, it was over 80%, yeah. uh, I believe. Uh, it was growing. Uh, local elections is traditionally quite low. I mean, it is worrying that in some parts, uh, less than 30% of the people turn out to vote. Uh, but overall, I don't think we shouldn't be too dramatic, I think. If you'd like to become a sponsor of the Dutch News Podcast, log on to www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E on.com slash Dutch News NL. Germany is to start drilling for gas off the Vaden Island of Schiermonnikoog. Until now, the Netherlands and Germany have both been reluctant to exploit the Vadensee because of environmental concerns, but the war in Ukraine and the heavy flak that Germany's taken for its dependency on Russian gas appears to have signalled a change in attitude. The Dutch-German border crosses the undersea gas field between Schiermonnikoog and the German island of Borkum and the Netherlands has already given its backing to the plan. Dutch company One Dias says there's a, around 60 million cubic metres of gas in the field, and that would be enough to meet 5% of the Netherlands' annual gas demand. So how has the plan gone down with the islanders on Schoenmonnik Oog? Are they as heavily defending uh, their <laughs> island as the Germans did in 1945? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, it hasn't gone down very well at all, uh, to put it mildly. They may be regressing they didn't uh, occupy Borkum at the same time. <laughs> but uh, Schoenmonnik Oog uh, has a Groen Links mayor, uh, Ineke van Kent. Uh, she said, as well as damaging the environment, drilling for gas was old hat, and the government should concentrate on renewable energy sources. On Borkum, local councillor Joachim Bakker said he understood the need to replace Russian gas, but he argued it should come from other gas fields further away from the island. And he's worried, mm -hmm. of course, uh, that uh, what's happened in Groningen with the gas drilling uh, where it's uh, triggered earthquakes and land subsidence is going to start happening on his island as well. Then we have uh, Maduro Dam-sized uh, tsunamis uh, on Schiermonnik Oog in the future. Yeah, indeed. One Dias says it can uh, start delivering gas from the Vadaze as early as 2024. So, yeah. Not popular among the islanders, but... Uh... No. It's also interesting to see that the EU has decided that natural gas is a renewable energy source. Yeah, uh, it's fascinating. They probably decided that after pressure from Germany, which still has a heavily coal-based uh, energy supply. Um, so f for Germany, it is a indeed a step in the right direction going from coal to natural gas. But in the Netherlands, of course, it is a step down. Uh, mm. We are trying to move away from natural gas and going to uh, yeah, natural resources and um, uh, nuclear power plants. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. We had this whole plan to switch the gas supply off altogether. Yeah. And now suddenly here we are in league with the Germans drilling for more gas under the Vadensee. Yeah. Uh, at least uh, some of the right-wing parties are now applauding the European Union finally at yes. uh, th this time. So, yeah, that's uh, that's also a, a fresh uh, development, I think. Funny how war can change uh, your whole perspective so, so quickly. And sports news finally, and the worst kept secret in Dutch football is out. 
Eric Ten Hag will leave Ajax at the end of the season to join Manchester United. Shock, shock, shock. The 52-year-old has signed a three-year contract at Old Trafford to take over from Ralf Rangnick. Ten Hag is best known in England for taking Ajax to the Champions League semi-finals in 2019 when they lost to Tottenham Hotspur. Mm. Uh, incidentally, United haven't been to that stage of the competition since 2011. Interesting. Yeah. Ten Hag is expected to sign Mitchell van der Gaag as his assistant coach, and he's hoping to recruit the former Twente Enschede and England manager Steve McLaren as well. Steve McLaren, who was uh, famously uh, uh, derided in the English tabloids as the Wally with the Broly when uh, they failed to qualify <laughs> for, was it the 2006 European Championships? I think it was, uh, 2008 maybe. Anyway. I'm not of any help here. No. Uh, Ten Hag's departure had been trailed in the English and Dutch media for several weeks. He told Ajax's website he was happy the deal had been finalised, but now he just wants to concentrate on the last five games of the season and winning a third league title. Ajax are currently four points ahead of second place PSV, so they're looking pretty good for that. But Ten Hag didn't get his way in the cup final, right? No. Uh, very entertaining game, the cup final, last Sunday, um, yeah, if you watched it. Ajax lost 2-1 to PSV. Ryan Kravenberg put Ajax ahead midway through the first half, but then PSV PSV came out firing on all cylinders after half-time and uh, scored twice in the first five minutes after the break. Uh, Eric Gutierrez with the header and Cody Capo. And the far panel disallowed three goals during the game as well. Oh, wow. So they had, a, they had a busy time. Two of them by Ajax for marginal offsides. And that means that PSV's coach, Roger Smith, who's also heading off uh, this end of the season, he's, go- he's going off to Benfica. He won't leave Eindhoven empty-handed, so it's nice for him. And it was also a setback for the third member of the Big Three, Feyenoord. Yes, because uh, they finally um, put their uh, dreams of a new stadium beside the mass out of their misery uh, after months of this uh, going on. Um, like the p- departure of Ten Hag, this comes as absolutely no surprise to anybody. ETV Raimont reported back in November that the club had already written off the Feyenoord City Stadium as uh, financially unviable. The 450 million euro project also included plans for shops and houses, um, but it was hugely unpopular with the fans who stage a lot of very angry protests against it. The architects yeah. involved in the project were targeted at their homes and in their offices. Club director Mark Guverman stood down after he got threats as well. Um, and finals managing director Dennis Teclusa said uh, the club would instead refurbish its Decaup Stadium, uh, which is kind of what uh, everyone said they should have just done from the beginning, um, yeah. and focus on football, which uh, I guess as a football club is what you should do. Yeah. So they finally pulled the uh, Gilles Beschore plug. They did. <laughs> <laughs> indeed. Indeed they did. Yeah. Rest in peace, Feyenoord City. That's what we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. And you can also now back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free paid-for shout-out on the podcast. My thanks to Paul Peters, I'm Gordon Derrick, and we'll be back next week. 